Michael Hart teaches political theory in the literature program at Duke University. He's the co-author with Antonio Negri of the Empire Trilogy and most recently Assembly. He's also the co-director of the Social Movements Lab. Tony Negri sadly died just recently on December 16th at the age of 90. He was a towering intellectual and political figure in modern Marxism and will be missed deeply for his radical philosophy and energy. In this conversation, Michael talks about their collaboration on the Empire Trilogy, what Tony meant to the process of learning together, and some of the spirited ways that they endeavored to inform the conversation about the most effective and enduring ways to resist oppression. There's no questioning the impact of the books Michael wrote with Negri, but for Hart, it was all about learning. He recalls that Slavoj Žižek once said that this is the thing that most impressed him about each successive text they wrote. That the point was not to suggest that they had everything figured out, in some airtight way, but to offer an invitation to rethink and rejuvenate democracy, and to wonder about why that term in particular seems to have this enduring power, despite so many efforts to inoculate its meaning and displace its place in politics. What I'll take away from this discussion, maybe more than anything else, is the stuff that I learned about how people learn. Listening again to the conversation, I was struck by how crucial this part of movements is. The way we learn to be democratic subjects is through that transformative process of learning alongside others. It's a process that can easily be corrupted and co-opted, but it's extremely important. The Subversive 70s, Michael's new book, was published in September by Oxford University Press. It's the first book he's written as a solo author in decades. For that reason, he says that he wanted it to be a different sort of exploration. There's much in it that is obviously historical, but it's not historiographical. It's about his own desires for insight into contemporary movements. We discuss how the book communicates with the contemporary climate movement what it might say about the struggle for survival and for freedom in Palestine, and the difference between the struggle for power and the struggle for liberation historically. Hart writes that in this sense, quote, liberation is not just emancipation, that is, releasing people from their chains in order to participate in the existing society. Liberation requires, in addition, a radical transformation of that society, overturning its structures of domination and creating new institutions that foster freedom. From your perspective in the book, The Subversive 70s, um, this is a decade that you say marks the beginning of our time, uh, which, you know, is like a, a, a bold statement, but one that you, you know, cash in claiming that like neoliberal policies have have set a course, as you put it, of privatizing public goods, are undermining welfare structures and increasing the gap between rich and poor. This is part of what marks our time in terms of like establishing these economic constraints um, on social life. But, you know, a huge part of your history, too, is understanding um, the kind of, you know, political culture or political imaginary through the prism of the 70s. And so, you know, I wanted to mention that I was I was talking with a comrade recently, and we were uh, we were talking about like this moment where you've got um, you know a resurgent far right kind of populism. You've got a Republican takeover, for example, in the United States of like the federal judiciary. Um, the Atlantic refers to this as the Republican axis reversing the rights revolution. Um, and I was saying, you know this seems to suggest a level of ambition 
right? The ambition to take power that I was sort of spitballing that the, the left doesn't seem to have that same kind of ambition. And my friend kind of pushed back and said, you know, it's not really about a lack of ambition. It's about a lack of resources. This is a highly resourced uh, takeover. At the same time, though, it feels like the subversive 70s is a robust history of how much resourcefulness and ambition the left has shown internationally in the face of finance capitalism and despotism. You know, did you want to address this question maybe to start of ambition for power versus democratic aspirations or like this issue of resources versus resourcefulness? That's a good, that's a nice way of, of posing, of posing the question. I, I do think, you know, one of the things that strikes me about the a range of movements in the 1970s is their audacity um, and, I guess, ambition in the way you're posing it, and 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 really for for liberation. That's what you know. It, it was a it was a frequently used term. That in fact, it was it was like the the default almost for what each movement had to be aiming for. You know, so mm-hmm. again, lesbian movement was for gay liberation. A feminist movement was for feminist liberation, black liberation, worker liberation, you know, rather than, and I do think that it makes sense to think about movements of our own time that have in some ways downgraded their ambitions. You know, hmm. you know, you could try to go through the list of ones that I was just mentioning, you know, like from, uh, from gay liberation to, I don't know, marriage equality or from feminist liberation to gender inclusion or uh, worker liberation to $15 an hour or something like that. I mean, I think it's true that there has been a um, downgrading of ambitions. And, I, and, and for me, in, in many ways, you know, being aware of and engaged with the history of these movements in the 70s is a call towards that, um, that level of aspiration. Now, the only hesitation I was having having with your formulation was when you were saying ambition for power. Hmm. And I'm not sure that my focus on liberation and and that notion of power as you were as you were casting it is the is the same. I mean, mm-hmm. I do think it does involve, you know, both do involve an overthrow of the basic structures that rule over the social world. The question is then, I, I, the only thing, and I'm not sure if this is the difference the way that you and I are formulating it, whether then taking power means occupying those structures in ways that are comparable to the way they were occupied before, or whether it does involve such a transformation that the social form would be different. And so it wouldn't just be it wouldn't just be a transition of personnel. Right. It would be a transformation of those structures themselves. I, I think that we're thinking about it the same way. I'm, I'm just, uh, and maybe focusing a little bit too, too closely on the implications of the terminology. And that's okay. I mean, um, I think the terms we use like matter. Um, and I think I use power in a kind of deliberately provocative way to kind of tease out the the very thing that you kind of identified, which is like this kind of the political realism, I guess, that's um, embedded in the concept of ambition. Mm-hmm. Right. And I like that you kind of superpose uh, audacity on there um, to, to suggest something more imaginative than just mere ambition, because it does, 
you know, take us to a bolder place in the sense of autonomy is like within grass, within, within, and should be considered to be within their grasp. It's just like, it's so hard to go to that hopeful, as it were, kind of, or more audacious place right now where, you know, you do have like, the reason I feel like you identify the seventies as the beginning of our time is that like, you know, the book is outlining a number of instances, for example, where like state repression, all these well-known events and lesser known events of, you know, vicious crackdown. Uh, There's really no end to the examples that we could gesture to of just kind of continuum of state violence where like there, there is a continuum that continues certainly into the present where we're currently witnessing the violent and really genocidal subjugation of, you know, Gaza by Israel. All eyes right now are on Gaza in a way that does feel a little different. And so, you know, it's, it's certainly, it feels audacious to uh, hope for a free Palestine or even an acknowledgement that Palestinian lives matter. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you took the temperature of the political discourse right now, it, it's a seemingly impossible topic. For people to weigh in on, people are losing their jobs. People in politics are being uh, uh, deplatformed for simply identifying Israel's attacks on Palestinian life as what they are, which is authoritarian and settler colonial and genocidal. Um, and I wanted to kind of connect this to the subversive seventies. There are only a couple of mentions of Palestinian liberation in the book, um, but it's certainly a book that we can sort of use to map out this specific struggle. There's a moment in your introduction where you admit that um, there are organizations that that fought oppression, that committed horrifying acts that should unequivocally be condemned morally and politically. Um, you know, this is a situation where any defense of Palestinian life is is for some reason mandated to be coupled with a condemnation of Hamas. Um, and, you know, you say like focusing on armed struggle must not be allowed to eclipse other more significant political movements that did not deploy weapons. How do you understand this moment in the struggle for Palestinian autonomy, liberation, life? um, And how can it be sort of connected to this idea that's on the very first page of your book, that the forces of order have historically been dedicated to rooting out and destroying subversive elements? In the current context of the siege on, on Gaza, it's very difficult you know, I guess there are, you know, there are limits. It could be that the the um, intensity of the need for defense and survival is such mm. that um, that it poses a, a greater challenges to constructing a project for liberation. Um, you know, and I do think that a, a, a Palestinian liberation, you know, would have to be more than just um, creating a Palestinian state that would be like other states. Absolutely. And so th- this would require, you know, not only an act of political imagination, but a, but a, a, a radical transformation. Mm. I'm not sure if this is the way you're intending it, but there are, there are certainly certain moments and, and instances when survival itself has to be the focus. And right. And and we might be in such a situation right now, uh, you know, with with regard to Gaza. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you said all eyes are on Gaza. In, in some way, no eyes are on Gaza, or rather, only the 
IDF's eyes are on Gaza because the, there's almost an impossibility of having um, actual knowledge of what of what's happening uh, inside Gaza. Um, right. But I don't view it as. I mean, I don't view. I certainly don't view Hamas's actions as a as a liberation movement. Mm-hmm. You know, the way I view October seventh is as a prison rebellion. I mean, it was, of course, you know, Gaza has been a prison for a long time. But n- nothing, you know, that's the easy thing. And, and prison rebellions are ugly. You know, prison rebellions, you know, first of all, they're not done by all the inmates. They take hostages. Uh, they often commit horrible acts, you know, prison rebellions. And, and then there are horrible reprisals ending in bloodbath. But, but what a prison rebellion does do, and I think this is actually, even though uh, overly simple, you know, an important thing here is a prison rebellion says that we're still here. Right. You know, you think that we're not, you know, that, that somehow that the, the prison goes unseen and it insists on, on their presence. None of what I'm saying rises to the level that of, of liberation. You know, I, maybe I should go back to the seventies too and say, I could not figure out how with all of the, I, I want to say revolutionary movements. I mean, even, uh, with all of the movements of contestation, you know, in, in the 1970s, I couldn't figure, with many of them, I couldn't figure out how to pose them in a framework of liberation. And in fact, you know, my, my going back to the 70s is not an historical project. You know, I'm, I'm certainly no, no objective historian or anything like that. What I want is to find what helps me in the present. I mean, mm-hmm. in the current situation, the conditions aren't such that, that, that make possible a, a, a project of liberation. I mean, I think there have to be preconditions. I understand that completely. Um, and resources are a question that feels like kind of haunts the whole book in an interesting way. Like hmm. you're not talking uh, directly about fuel. You're not talking specifically <laughs> about like energy, but when you talk about Iran, you can't not talk about those things. So it's like this thing that kind of surfaces and then, disappears. But this idea of October 7th as a prison rebellion is um, not just a unique uh, interpretation, but I think um, one that does get us to a place where we can kind of begin to think about uh, what's currently happening in, in, in terms of the, the punishment that's currently being enacted, which is, yeah. you know, you're absolutely right that uh, it's difficult to have eyes on Gaza. There's a there's a kind of deliberate screening um, of the of the genocidal violence that's happening. But at the same time, there is an understanding said over and over again that this is collective punishment for October seventh, and in a way that's very similar to a, a prison rebellion like Attica. Yeah, there is this like revenge that is being taken um, against those that would have the audacity to rise up in any form. Um, and yeah, I mean, like it kind of reminds me of the way in which you kind of, you know, describe the militancy of the seventies as indigestible. There's just this kind of way in which it's irreconcilable to imagine any form of insurgency, um, contesting, you know, power, but when it does, um, reckoning with it is always going to be difficult. And the way in which we kind of reckon with it seems to be a, a, a recurrent kind of problem. Um, you know, so for example, the way that you talk about this kind of success versus failure, failure binary 
in the kind of collective uh, memorializing of the the revolutionary event. You say simply focusing on victory or defeat misses what's politically significant and useful in the kind of, or instructive in in these moments, and frequently go back to uh, Robin D. G. Kelly on this point who says that too often our standards for evaluating social movements pivot around whether or not they succeeded in realizing their visions rather than on the merits or power of the visions themselves. Um, So this is about a kind of futuring or prefigurative quality that the revolutionary event can have. Um, And so, yeah, like this is what you're sort of trying to mine in a sense is like these experiments with different forms of popular power, as you put it. Um, And, and I guess like, especially this moment where you talk about how like activists learn from other struggles, like that to me is clearly like this kind of anchor for you. You say that activists were keenly aware of revolutionary advances and setbacks in other parts of the world, often translating their lessons so as to be applicable to their own circumstances. Um, So that's a different sort of incrementalism that is, is like this restless constant kind of struggle should that also cause us to reconsider this like unhelpful binary, no doubt like inherited from competitive consumer capitalism of failure versus success, win or lose? Um, you know, were you when you were writing uh, the conclusion, for example, did you feel more or less strongly about the nature of that ideology of defeat that seems to be so nerve wracking for the left? Yeah, yeah, and there's even, I mean, I. There's one distinction I want to introduce in there, an additional mm-hmm. one, which is, well, it's, and it struck me when a friend of mine read the manuscript before I published it and said something like, you know, Michael, all these things are very inspiring, but they all lost. And yeah, right. my, and it's, you know, true too, you know, you think about not only movements I talk about in this book, but, you know, the history of liberation struggles, it's full of defeats, you know, that's, I don't know where we're going to start, but. Uh, you could start start about Black Reconstruction, start about the Paris Commune. Any number of these ones, you know, are are, are in some ways defeats. But so the first distinction that I want to introduce is between defeat and failure. And so mm-hmm. the way I see it is a failure is defined by an internal flaw, and therefore its end is really an end, whereas a defeat is the result of a superior external force, often in these times military, you know, but military ideological, think of all the weapons that were against, say, the Black Panther Party. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so if you were going to argue, so one with a specific group, for instance, one could have this discussion. I I would find it very interesting saying, to what extent was the history of the Black Panther Party a failure? And then if one were to name this, that, internal structures, or was it a defeat? which, of course, mm-hmm. you know, it's very easy to talk about the superior external forces. But the thing is about a defeat is that a defeat continues. You know, the, the defeat lives on, and that's, I think, where Robin Kelly was that in that quote often that's often cited. You know, I think that's where he's, that's the way I see him being oriented. Because a defeat, we can pick that up and mm-hmm. take it somewhere else. And so... That's the way I, I'm. I'm primarily viewing, you know, the 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 partly I'm selecting for movements that I see as being defeated rather than failing, um, mm-hmm. because I think they have a future. That makes sense, and they're susceptible to us being, yeah, picking them up. The one other thing you mentioned, which I which I also find 
very interesting about the the circulation of struggles, you know, sometimes in the form of a cycle of struggles, you know, where struggle being born in one geographical area or even in one, in one, um, let's say, sector of struggle in the same geographical space, that it passes to another and it gets translated into different terms because it can't just be, you know, reproduced. And that there's a kind of uh, modulation that you were calling incremental shifts. There's a kind of modulation that goes on that, that continues the, that continues the cycle. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that is, you know, that's just, uh, it's worth always remembering that that's how these things work. You know, that that's what, like that we read, I don't know, you know, certainly for instance, Black Lives Matter activists read about what's going on in Palestine and that for them has been, you know, a super important example, you know, reference point. Um, mm -hmm. But even more so, I would say, you know, uh, in 2011, you know, Spanish activists had not only read about, but had then gone to Tunisia and Egypt and seen what had been happening in the squares and and understood the demand for for a, a new kind of democracy. And so that the 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 encampments and the so-called indignados in Spain in, two, in in May in 2011 is born in some ways as a kind of translation. By the time we get to New York. And Zuccotti Park, that's already a, another permutation uh, mm. on that. So, so that, I mean, I, I've often in the past tried to insist on this as a way that we can understand a, a kind of globalization of movements that are always each one deeply road, rooted in a local reality, you know, so that there isn't mm. some sort of, uh, what do you call it, binary between these two, you know, it's either local or global or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But what you're pointing out is, I think, the, the different factor of it, which is the, the kind of political progress that goes on in these learning and, 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 and interpreting, uh, you know, the incremental progress that you were saying, which doesn't, and I don't think you intended incremental to mean, I don't think you were dismissing something because of incremental. I, and no, and no, I yeah. do think, you know, that that's an important thing. So we... So we should probably come back to the seventies. I mean, uh, hmm. I was going to say everyone, but a large part of the world was closely following Allende's election in nineteen seventy in Chile, and then even more so, you know, the the well, the progress of the the revolutionary process for those years too. And then, I mean, in retrospect, we see much more, you know, September eleventh, nineteen seventy three, the coup and the overthrow, mm -hmm. which also created. Um, global effects, but it's not only Chile, you know, and so people elsewhere were modeling and responding to and learning lessons from uh, what was going on there. Similarly, I don't know, Detroit auto workers, you know, even the the League of Black, Black Revolutionary Workers representative goes to yeah, her yes. in, in Italy and speaks to, you know, uh, revolutionary workers group there, you know, so there's a kind of, um, you know, like, it's not just inspiration, too, it's also learning actual tactics and means and and the kind of incremental process that you're that you're talking about that's something i find super um super interesting and inspiring and um either thinking about it in the 70s or thinking about it in 2011 or thinking about it today um i think that's a really important political phenomenon mm -hmm. yeah it, it you know it's like you you sort of said 
uh, it's not just inspiring, but then you sort of underline that it is inspiring. Like there's a way in which like story does both things. Like it inspires and it instructs, of course, like this is its kind of function, but we're not talking merely about stories. We're talking about the kind of um, the construction of history in real time, the recording of it and the interpretation of it. You call Chilean society at, at that moment, a cauldron of political innovation. Um you know, what are these social tipping points? What do they feel like? Um, and, and how can we uh, recover what it felt like? Um, you know, I think like the, the example that you give of the, the story of Chile in that, in that moment, um, this kind of interregnum in a way between 1970 to the coup in 1973, it's like there's a reconceptualizing of um, your relationship to place that happens where like this concept of social property um, gets like radically reimagined. And it, it it's, it's the commons. It's like this resurging, uh, resurgent no- notion of the commons um, where like this uh, uh, taken for granted thing of private property um, is destabilized. And you have a moment where, you know, as you say, participatory democratic institutions of collective self-management um, make possible this, this like, yeah, this, this uh, reclaiming um, of the land and resources. To me, it's connected deeply to energy, actually, um, and the kind of this kind of extractivist ideology that is, as Darren Barney says, this kind of thing that evolves behind our backs and, and a way that basically like settler colonialism manifests as infrastructure, but it didn't have to turn out that way. And like moments of political innovation and reconceptualizing social property, I think like give us a glimpse of how like a a different branching pass and everything everywhere all at once, like alternative reality could have changed our current contemporary relationship to energy. But the seventies produced uh, our kind of contemporary neoliberal moment uh, where that's not, what energy looks and feels like. Um, but I kind of wanted to connect this to uh, one of the kind of um, watchwords in the book, which is multiplicity, uh, because it seems to me like, so there's a couple moments where I was thinking really intensely about like the climate movement. There's one section where you're talking about anti-nuclear dem- uh, democratizations and actually explicitly talk about climate activism. And I'd like to go there in a second, but I, I kind of want to ask about this, the relationship to multiplicity Um, and multiple kind of braided struggles in relationship to like the climate movement. Um, You know, what you, what you say basically, and it's this kind of um, injunction in a way you say it's necessary to find the means to articulate together multiple relatively autonomous liberation struggles, such that class struggle cannot take place without feminist struggle and anti-racist struggle and queer struggle and more. Um, required instead, you say, is a strategic effort to create solidarity and a form of struggle in common without priority. Without priority is to me like really particularly brilliant. Um, that and 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 brilliant for me in terms of trying to illuminate what it is about the climate struggle that is still not at that tipping point, not at that social tipping point. Well, yeah, I can just I, yeah. let me take one step back to go to go then yeah. uh, a step forward. I mean, the step back is that, you know, to think this, uh, I, the, there's a, uh, a dual thinking about multiplicity going on and not unrelated mm-hmm. ones. One is thinking about 
the multiple structures of domination and their relationship to each other. You know, the relationship mm -hmm. between capital and patriarchy and white supremacy um, and others. And I don't mind the open nature of the, that list. Um, and so theorizing at the time, you know, part of what I was working through mostly in feminist writing at the time about how one can't, in order to understand even a concept like capitalist patriarchy, you can't understand the one as being prior to the other, you know, as capital mm -hmm. being prior to pa patriarchy, even though if you were to take, I don't know, uh, some empirical measured evidence, you could say, well, patriarchy is older than capital, or I don't know, capital creates more damage. I mean, it, it, when you, once you start measuring it, it, it gets stupid, you know, like you lose the point of the argument. And I think they're, 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 their insistence, and this is what I mean by thinking that these are always strategic projects, is that one has to recognize that they are, at least in the double negative, not unequal. Like one has to be able to understand the ways that capital and patriarchy are, are interwoven and mutually constituted in a way that doesn't give priority to one over the other. And part of the reason for that is the other side of the dual thinking on this, like I mentioned, you know, because that is in some ways a precondition, I'd say, for being able to recognize the nature of the relationship among struggles, you know, that yeah, yeah, yeah. if we are going to think, you know, I think in the U.S., the, the most, uh, you know, cited references the Kumbahi River Collective for this are, if we are going to think how um, feminist struggle and anti-imperialist struggle and anti-colonial struggle and anti uh, racist struggle and the number of other ones we're going to say, if we are going to think about these struggles functioning together, we have to recognize that there isn't priority of one or the others. And in some ways, at mm -hmm. the time in the 70s, this was even more present, but it's present for us too, was what I guess we could like anachronistically call a class first position, which was the default in some ways, you know, inherited from the 60s, you know, which... Mm -hmm. Yes, of course, there's a race question. There's a woman question, as they said at the time. But really, you know, capital is the primary enemy or something like that. And so they were mm -hmm. struggling against that. And this and this, is in some ways, this notion of multiplicity that that requires a lack of priority is a necessary way for approaching that climate movement today. In some ways, I think it does pose a great challenge. But, you know, for other for other struggles today, too, I don't think this is a um, you know, there's a lot of talk about convergence, you know, sometimes in France, I'd say that was the more used term, you know, where in the U.S. some ways intersectionality of struggles is used in some sense. But anyway, despite the talk of this, mm. I think in movements, even though I think it's on the agenda, you know, I think it's constantly on the agenda of, of the most interesting movements today. There is, a, I think, a great difficulty in putting into practice this lack of priority. You know, for instance, in multiracial struggles today, it's not a question, and it can't be a question of whether alternative racializations in North America are equal to black suffering, for instance. You know, because if we're mm -hmm. with, with going with different measures, I don't know, the history of slavery, something like that, you can't think a multiplicity of racial projects together the way many of these examples i was posing in the 70s were which i found quite interesting 
So I think it's a similar thing now to finally come to your point about climate activism. You know, I've had many friends, you know, involved in, in climate activists say things to me like, you know, Michael, all these things are very good. There's problems, you know, the racial problems, class problems, et cetera. But the climate has to take priority because if not, we're all dead. You know, like that's, you don't, you don't understand, Michael. This is what, you know, it, like, let's talk in concrete terms if we don't do that. And I, I understand that. But I do think, and now we're just coming to my own political judgment, I think, that mm. uh, the possibility of articulation in the kind of terms that you and I both have just been talking about is a much more powerful form of political struggle today than granting prior, you know, the, the kinds of alliances or what if we call them solidarity between movements that are really not able to articulate in the way I'm describing. So, I mean, this is that, you know, now we've just arrived at a point where now we're talking about whatever political judgment, political desire. It's not about, you know, either or questions, but that's my position. Yeah, I share it, honestly. Like, I think there's a way in which, um, like, coalitions that decide we need to demand equity in climate action will be dismissed uh, because they're including issues that, as Kyla Tian Harris says, like, are unrelated because they're, you know, they, they're seen as too polemical. Like, they're desirable from a leftist political perspective and they're opportunistic. But, like, from Tian Harris' perspective, those things are also climate issues like food, housing, mm -hmm. access to energy, transportation. Right. And also uh, colonial relationships and uh, totally racism thought both within national boundaries and also at a international scale. Yeah. Right. All these things are intrinsically related. Mm -hmm. And this is like the argument of Macarena Gomez Barras that, you know, if we just decide in the transition to green energy to con continue constructing the global south, as she says, a region of plunder, discovery, raw resources, taming, classification and racist adventure, like not only is that going to fuel more climate chaos, it will just allow oppression, corruption and conflict to continue too, right? So it's like, politicizing the omission of social issues from like the discourse, it can be isolating, but it, it does feel like there's far more potential um, for what you call articulation um, in that, the, in that way of expressing the struggle. Um, and to me, you know, it, it's just about like missing, missing opportunities for solidarity through multiplicity as well. Um, but yeah, you know, it's connected certainly to uh, the argument that you make around uh, democratizing science as well. Like in, in terms of the lessons of the um, anti-nuclear movement, you say that uh, today the terrain on which the strategy of democratizing science lives on most clearly is climate activism. Um, as in the case of nuclear technologies, the spread and democratization of scientific knowledges about the climate constitute an essential means for transforming existent, um, existing governmental decision-making structures. Um, so it's like this interesting thing where, you know, the uh, uh, priority of expertise 
um, is seen to, is seen to be justified on the basis of like a curtain, a kind of expediency, right? Like we don't have time for translation. We just have to like listen to the experts. We need a kind of more or less authoritarian form of science to tell us what to do. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me that your uh, uh, storytelling around the clamshell alliance and their democratization efforts, like it, it tells a different story about what becomes possible when especially you use like, as it were, use or leverage or, or, or look to particular kind of focusing events like Chernobyl or Three Mile Island as an opportunity to mainstream environmental radicalism, basically. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to kind of draw those connections for folks or, or give a sense of what the Clamshell Alliance was and did in terms of democratizing science and kind of like bringing people into the movement through that strategy of translation? Yeah, that's great. I mean, the, I mean, the first thing to say, which is the, the most obvious really, is that um, nuclear fusion is super complicated scientific process. And I don't, mm -hmm. um, and, and so struggling against it was, and this is, you know, I, I think anyone who, not only people were uh, climate activists, but anybody thinking about the climate today recognized there too. It's, it's the climate, the, the science is complicated. You know, it's not, right. uh, it's not immediately available to everyone. Right. On the other hand, we all can be experts. You know, it doesn't take mm -hmm. that much to learn enough to be able to make political decisions. You know, there is, there is obviously an education process, but that's something that movements can do. Um, mm. especially for, you know, people within movements. And, and so I just, maybe just first drawing that parallels and it seems to, was clarifying for me, you know, thinking about the ways in which the anti-nuclear movement in the 19, in, in 1970s, which was mostly at the time, you know, in previous decades, previous to that, since, since Hiroshima really had been focused on the nuclear bombs and, and nuclear testing. By the 70s, there was a lot of focus on nuclear energy production and its dangers and 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 um, negative effects. And that too, you know, is a uh, right. It was something that was supposed to be left to experts. So anyway, that, I think we can recognize the similar challenge in the and the climate movement, and I think a similar aspect of, you know, I don't, this isn't one of those cases where I think, oh, climate activists ought to learn from what the nuclear activists are doing in the 70s. No, I think that's going on. Um, and there, and part of the success of climate activism over the last 10 years, or maybe more, has been that um, a much wider frame of people feel, have enough, have sufficient scientific knowledge to understand the dynamics of what we're talking about, you know, and don't feel like, you know, like throw up your hands and say, look, experts have to figure this out or I'll follow experts or something like that. Um, so I think that, I mean, that part of it seems really, seems really important to me, this, yeah, democratization of science, you know, which sometimes goes on the, you know, like we all can be experts type notion or, or D or combating the technocratization of, power, you know, of, of political making. That's definitely one side of it. I mean, there, there was another side of, of um, anti-nuclear activism then that I think is not as active in climate activism, but maybe you'll, you'll, you could disabuse me 
because of us having different contexts, which is like at the Clamshell Alliance was was really focused on an internal democratic process. It's which I see, you know, which which some see as deriving mostly from anarchist principles. I see it mostly deriving from from feminist um, organizational principles. Um, and so not only with regard to the scientific knowledge, but also with the internal functioning of the movement, um, trying as best they could to develop democratic relations and democratic procedures. Um, and that seems to me something, I mean, I, I also find that admirable as something to struggle with. I, I'm, not, um, I'm not one who uh, would advocate you know, some absolute consensus model or um, whatever in current, more current parlance about some sort of absolute horizontality. But, but I do think that this struggle with um, democratic decision-making within a movement was something um, and is something, you know, remains something that's, that's very important. And, um, and perhaps is a difference between at least the, that aspect of the nuclear anti-nuclear movement then and the climate movement now. Yeah, I think well said. Um, and, you know, there are different modalities for the kind of democratization of science. And the one that resonates with me is this idea that, yes, we can all be experts. I mean, so many of us were forced to become amateur epidemiologists during the <laughs> COVID-19 pandemic yeah. um, and did. I mean, um, there was, however... Uh, just as powerful uh, a set of forces that were driving people into, you know, disinformation about like 3G towers causing, you know, COVID or, and these kinds of things. So, you know, we are a disinformable species at the same time as we can become experts. Um, and I think like a big part of the book is to kind of show what is possible uh, when you, um, free up the flow of knowledge uh, with a with a sense of how people can benefit from participation in democracy. Like it's not merely about representation; it's about participation f- from your perspective. And so many of the case studies are about kind of demonstrating that. Um, and you know, it, it, the thing that it, what you were talking about kind of drew drew me to is the uh, gay liberation movement of the 1970s, um, which you say began in June 1969 at the rebellion at New York's Stonewall Inn and ended in June 1981 with the first reported case of what would later be known as AIDS. Um, you know, the as you say, at the latter end, the AIDS pandemic, along with the grief, mourning, outrage, and activism in response to it, and the government's inaction looms so large that it seems difficult to see beyond it. Um, but the interesting thing, too, of course, is that you know, AIDS gives birth to a different sort of, not liberation movement, but a, a demand for really in some sense survival. Like as you mm-hmm. put it earlier, right. there are moments where survival just is forced into a position of being paramount. And that's what you see in in uh, David Francis' film, um, How to Survive a Plague, for example. Um I just want people. To, okay, go, sorry. No, yeah. Finish your sentence. Sorry. Well, just the people, as he says, like in the ACT UP movement, talked about how like they will survive longer the more that they know, right? Like that there was a self education yeah. element to that movement. Uh, but go ahead. No, it was exactly that that I wanted to. I mean, because yeah, yeah. I think there was, and I've been very interested, you know, at the time in the in the really um, 
education that went on about how different drugs work. And, you know, because uh, the FDA wasn't approving drugs, they were necessary. And so there was a kind of um, education in pharmaceuticals and, and how the disease works and, you know, uh, that, that was going on as part of ACT UP, that, you know, a real scientific uh, expertise being mm-hmm. involved. I mean, I think everyone has this experience with, you know, I, I mean, I hope some of the people listening haven't had this experience, but all of those who've had the experience of uh, a loved one who gets cancer or a loved one who gets some other disease, I mean, you become quickly, and one can, we all can become really experts on it. Like I then, you know, I don't know, some friend of mine has cancer and some rare form of cancer. And in the following months, I become incredibly informed about it. It's not that hard. I mean, I don't mean that then I'm going to start doing surgery or something like that. I, I, it's not that. But that we right. we all go through that experience of becoming experts in incredibly, um, what do you call it, dense um, scientific fields. And mm-hmm. um, and so it's, I mean, I guess I'm just giving that rather out of place example, you know, about all of us having friends or family members and then going through that that crash education um, mm. is to recognize, you know, there aren't, I guess when you were saying before that everyone can be an expert, you know, the, of course, mm-hmm. can is important because we aren't immediately, but um, I think that's really important to recognize. And that's, I think the basis for certain political movements is saying, we're actually the argument for the democratization of mm-hmm. such political decisions is that we can, um, to do these things. I mean, yeah, I was just going to go off on, I don't know if this is a tangent or not, you know, which is that mm-hmm. the, the political leaders who are making these decisions are no geniuses. Like they, what they That's know right, how yeah. to do is right. take advice from experts. And sometimes, you know, when they, when they need to, they do some of them, the better ones, maybe learn to learn something about it. There's no reason why we can't, you know, why everyone can't you know, know enough to make yeah. political decisions about these things. So one of the things I like, this is, I hope this isn't also a tangent. One of the things, that, the reason even why I wanted it is the, I attacked this chapter first about um, the anti-colonial movements in the Spanish, I mean, sorry, in the Portuguese colonies in mm-hmm. Africa, which had not achieved independence yet, you know, the others had. I mean, meaning the other African colonies of Britain, of France, of Germany, that, and, um, and one of the things that inspired me about the process of these anti-colonial movements was their insistence on both the concept of popular power, but also the notion of revolutionary democracy. You know, that, that, that it wasn't that they were aiming to reproduce the democratic social forms of, you know, European or North American liberal constitutions, but rather they, they were inventing a new form of democracy. And that the... And further, this is actually the the more important step I want, which is that the institutions, the democratic institutions like these committee structures at a village level or the larger committees at a a slightly bigger scale, that the committee structures themselves were meant also to transform the subjects that participated. You know, in some ways that the same forum in which people could participate democratically we're meant to make them into democratic participants. You know, so it's not, you know, that this is, this is, I'm going to call it 
Cabral saying this, one of the, the leaders in, in Guinea-Bissau, one mm-hmm. of these Portuguese colonies, his his explanation was that that the population wasn't already trained in democratic relations. That but that the but it's not that you had to wait for some sort of education process so that 20 years later that they then they could be ready for democracy. It's rather that the creating of democratic institutions and the transformation of the um, population is a simultaneous process. That was something that I found inspiring about the notion of democracy that 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 sort of carried through for me with interpreting other interpreting other democratic experiences or uh, democratic aspirations or or why would democracy remain a keyword in these revolutionary movements when mm. often facing the kind of uh, propaganda of democracy that we I mean that you and I grew up with and and certainly related to right this kind of reduction of democracy to um, a notion of freedom that is profoundly white it feels like um, and profoundly um, you know capitalistic uh, yeah I think this is the thing and and there's a, 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 pr- a kind of crucial way in which um, you know the hope of the book one that you express for example in your um, I think like for me indelible uh, appearance in Astor Taylor's documentary examine life is like it's about the joys of a political life that we're talking about. Like there is that phrase that you use um, in that film and, you know, capturing that is part of the point. It feels like that, um, you know, going back and, 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 and in trying to kind of genealogize these events, um, you know, there is a, a kind of, you know, a narrative trajectory that bends toward liberation. At least that's the hope. Um, and I guess like in terms of like, looking at the subversive seventies, the, the book, right. The book, which is an attempt to um, begin the process of kind of, you know, archiving these movements as it were. Um, did you like in structuring it the way that you did, like you mentioned that you start with the 1974 um, uh, popular movements um, in, in, in Portugal's kind of uh, African colonies, like, did you want to encourage a kind of desultory style of readership where the reader could move from section to section? Or were you kind of hoping that people would move in almost a linear way through the book? Um, was there any thought put into that element of what's instructive about these struggles? You know, I'm, I continue to operate under the illusion and I recognize it an illusion that, you know, people read things in order and people read everything. And I, you know, the way I tend to read books, you know, but I know people don't do that. So, um, and that's, and that's good. You know, I, 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 I admire that. So I'm perfectly happy for, and I think it even function, you know, I even intended to function well, that if people just want to read about, if people just want to read about what I think about the gay liberation movement in the seventies, or if they just want to read about, South Africa, you know, that, 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 that's, that seems totally fine and separable, but it's true that there is a kind of, that in my own mind, I find it satisfying to have this, have certain kind of ordering and, and structure Mm -hmm. that, that makes sense to me, but it might only be for me. Um, I wanted to come back to something you said right in the midst of that last point, which was, 
you know, you were also, you were in some ways uh, returning again to the very beginning of our conversation about why the seventies are proximate for us, or, or maybe why I'm claiming that, you know, what, what, why right, right, right. I think the seventies are close to us. And what, what, what you had said at the very beginning, which is definitely true is that the forms of domination we face today, and we often, there are many people who analyze them in such a way that they really initiated in the 1970s. You know, the neoliberalism, like you said, one could think of other economic markers, I don't know, the shift from Fordism to post-Fordism or the decentralization of manufacturing, you know, these sorts of things that the power changed in the 70s and therefore we're facing the same regime in some sense that they were facing then. And I think that's true. I think that's true. I'm, I'm, I'm also, and it really matters more to me, the other side, which is that I think that the, that the political problems that were, that were, that were identified, you know, and confronted, but also conceptualized by the movements in the seventies are still our problems. And so that's what, I think that's what divines us as being part of their era and them as being first kind of test, test case in how to confront um, this reality we're facing is that they, they dis, they, they in some ways displaced certain political problems that no longer made sense or maybe never did. But you know what the most important thing is really to identify a real problem and to try to engage it you know i guess you know maybe i would say that you know it's not the only thing done by politics obviously but by political theory you know both the political theory that one might do in a university setting but even more so the kind of political theory that's done collectively in movements I think that identifying real political problems is one of the most important is one of the most important pro, pro, project, you know, achievements. Yeah, there are go achievements. You know, so like for instance, I do remember mentioning in the book, and I could explain these, but maybe they're also already obvious from our conversation. I, I was I came to the conclusion at a certain point that for them, you know, for these movements I'm considering in the 1970s, violence was not really a political problem. You know, violence versus nonviolence doesn't mean that violence should be considered in some ways haphazard, but that wasn't a primary problem for them. Instead, articulation, you know, as I'm, as you and I were talking about it 15 minutes ago, that was a real mm -hmm. political problem and remains for us today, like you were saying. You know, I think the way I'm translating something you and I said, I think both of us said a little while ago, which is that, Many contemporary movements, climate act, climate movements, not alone in this regard, see the the desirability of articulation with other movements as um, paramount. It's very strong, and yet it it doesn't happen automatically, and it doesn't happen easily. You know, I think it's it's I it's an important problem uh, for us, I, I, and I guess. You know, when I'm saying that, I feel like someone might misinterpret what I mean by a problem. I don't mean it's a, I don't mean it's insoluble. I don't mean it's even just a difficulty. I mean, it's a, something that demands our attention and efforts. 
Um, and that it shouldn't, I think, ossify into like a paradigm. Like, right. as the, like let's not imagine that like the discovery ends and that we've achieved finally um, yeah. some magic formula for diagnosing the nature of power. Like, I, I feel as though there was a moment certainly when I was in graduate school where the massively influential books that you were writing with Antonio Negri were seen as this somehow like this Bible or something that if you read them and you talked about them, then you will have mastered something. But it's like precisely, I think uh, 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 it's it was meant as a kind of invitation to start thinking differently about democracy, I think. Um, and so is this book. Like, it feels like that's what this book is doing too. Um, in talking about, in some cases, I feel like kind of forgotten struggles. I mean, how many people are still talking about the um, Kwangju uprising, you know, in South Korea. Well, and I didn't know about it before I started this. Maybe I should be ashamed to say that, but I, yeah, things I learn about, that's what we do. Yes, yeah. You know, it's like, this is the thing. Like, we have to um, have a degree of vulnerability in terms of, like, recognizing our the gaps in our knowledge. Yeah. You know, this is um, a community that you describe as springing up over the course of, like, almost literally a week and yet is still this kind of cauldron, so to speak, of political innovation um, at the end of the 1970s and early 1980s in South Korea at a time that, you know, people's uh, political imagination is not necessarily attentive to. And yet you're saying like the the aspirations of Kwangju communities captured in kind of a microcosmic form, the competition between participatory and representative forms of democratic self-government that the book is so concerned with. Um, so it's just like, it's fascinating. Um, so too is like, you know, the attention you pay to Nicaragua and Iran, where, you know, there was like one particular turn of phrase that you used in that section on the kind of connections between theology and Marxism, um, where you talk about peeling away layers of assumptions that we have. Um, you know, you say it a couple of times, you say peeling away the first layer of assumptions has revealed the central role of Marxists in the revolutionary movement, peeling away the second layer of assumptions regarding the opposition between the secular and the religious, the Marxist and the Islamic helps reveal the political and theoretical innovations of that revolutionary movement. I wondered if you want to talk about just like that, if you remember writing that phrase, like peeling away assumptions, and if the whole project in some ways is about seeing the 70s in a fuller way by like peeling away the assumptions, especially of the revolutionary 60s, um, and allowing us to kind of, you know, a little bit more of a transparent idea. Like, is that sort of, did you realize that was your methodology when you wrote that phrase, I wonder? I, it felt, I guess, I, I, the, the, the explanation, the, the local explanation of that is it felt, for me, in learning about the, um, the movements during the revolutionary process, you know, certainly not talking about in Iran after the, after 1979, but in the revolutionary process of the 70s, before the overthrow of the Shah, um, that was in some ways, in my own reading practice, what it had been. You know, first, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's more like describing my own my own process. Right. Uh, I had yeah, yeah. I had yeah certain received knowledge, I guess you know, thin knowledge about. Um, what the revolutionary movements have been like. And so learning at each stage, you know, first, like, like you just said about them being so deeply, you know, uh, 
Marxist and communist movements, and then and then also about that that mixture of many aspects of the revolutionary struggle. You know that there was both theological and and um, mm-hmm. and secular at the same time. You know, I I'm, I'm now I'm returning to something you said. You know, like right before that, which was uh, you know something about my books with Tony and Empire and the other ones, something like that. And I mm-hmm. I remember a certain point. Um, and I think it was meant as a compliment, but it was one of the things that made me feel best uh, about this. I'm pretty sure it was Slavoj Žižek that said this, although he probably wouldn't remember this, which is that um, it was after, you know, not, not after, after several of them had come out. And he said, you know, says what, what seems most striking in this is you guys are always willing to learn things. And I thought that's mm. really exactly what I want. Right. You know, which is, um, and it's true that, you know, the way I, at least in my view about those books together with Tony was, you know, in some ways recognizing what we didn't understand in one project and then trying to learn more about them. You know, I don't know, those, you know, a section about Bolivia that, and, you know, it's, you know, that is a certain kind of um, relationship between decolonial thought and, and Marxist thought and these sorts of things that, was more or less situated in the Bolivian experience. And that was just a learning experience for us. I mean, we didn't, I mean, I wouldn't say that we were, yeah, anyway, that's, um, that's how I feel about it. You know, in some ways that the books with Tony, I felt were always very, like we were always focused on each other, you know, and, and in conversation with each other and, um, yeah, and the, hoping that we would learn out of the process. So, um, I mean, I'm. It's not that I'm. I mean, I'm certainly pleased that other people, you know, have liked them or said nice things about them. Sometimes, even pleased when people say mean things about them. I think they serve a certain function. Yeah, put it that way. You know, in the in the end. <laughs> sure. But like I said, it's mostly been satisfied at a at a kind of learning process. You know, either. Together with Tony, which, you know, this book we've been talking about now, it's the first book I wrote alone in, tw- in 30 years. You know, I, it's, and it's lonely to write alone. I mean, I know everybody else does it, but I, it's lonely for me um, to write alone. But I had to write something different. So in some ways, I, uh, this is probably something from a reader that one doesn't recognize. But I felt like I couldn't write, you know, just the same thing that Tony and I have been writing or a certain extension of the same way of thinking I had to do find a way of doing something different. And this was my, my solution to that, that at least for me internally felt, felt like something different. It does. I mean, it absolutely does. And I think like the, you see it in these moments of like exhilaration that come through in the text, like you, you outlined, there's like a theoretical vocabulary that you set up. Um, but then there's this kind of this force that comes out. Uh, it's, it's interesting, for example, that um, the discussion of Italy marks the end of a particular part of the book. And then there's like this gallery of incredible photos, this kind of like rush of history um, in a different form, like in a visual form. Um, and I, you know, there's like emotion in the text that um, is interesting. And I think it's precisely about, you know, or at least it feels provisionally about trying to, um, you know, unburden the academic text from having to like get it right. You know, it's like 
it, there's a lot of moments where you talk about the kind of limit of capacity and the beginning of the conversation. Um, and those don't feel like um, just mere gestures. Like it does, it does feel meaningful. And I wanted to kind of maybe, um, you know, it, as my kind of last cluster of questions, um, bring that into conversation, that kind of exhilaration and, and level of emotion that's in the text into conversation with um, the way that you talk about the U.S. labor movement uh, and labor organizing in the states. I mean, um, you 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 cite Jefferson Cowie as saying that in 1970 alone, there were over 2.4 million workers engaged in large-scale work stoppages, um, that there was this escalation of rejection and refusal of the um, da- how dangerous work was. I mean, uh, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, you say, estimated 65 on-the-job deaths per day in U.S. auto plants, about half of those from heart attacks. You know, just like the unbelievable scale of immiseration in the U.S. factory. And, you know, whether we can use those lessons to talk about, as you do in the conclusion of the book, the contemporary labor movement in the United States, the the high profile wins of Chris Smalls at an Amazon fulfillment warehouse, Starbucks worker organizing. Like there does seem to be a groundswell of trade unionism in like the academic and to some extent the software sectors. But I guess the question I would ask is like, do you feel as though it's multiple or militant enough that these are struggles that are finding each other or that are, you know, questioning in the way that you see Labor, the labor movement in the U.S. in the '70s, questioning like trade unionism as a thing that is too interested in a homogeneous notion of solidarity than in building collective power, or do you do you sort of have a degree of you know wonder at the kinds of organizing that are that's happening in the current moment in the United States? You're right that there's um, there that there is a relative um, resurgence of you know, both unionization and, and militancy of labor struggles today, um, which, which is in itself, you know, a, a, a great thing. And I am interested in ways in which, um, and one should try to track, I think, ways in which these labor struggles are um, cast in such a way that demand articulation with other struggles, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's a real thing. It's, it's, it's not, I don't think, you know, uh, able to fit neatly into the current UAW demands, however, you know, important those demands are and however important their victories are. Um, but I do think it has to be part of, I mean, I think it's destined to be, okay, that was the wrong language. I was more, I was a little bit more hopeful, you know, like that it it really, I think that it needs to be for a political effectiveness. Yeah. Part of, Mm. um, part of the contemporary labor movement, you know, so I, I guess there's, there's a couple different layers of this that I, that I felt it was useful to think about the transformations, the industrial and labor market transformations of the 1970s. You know, I, I, I do think that there's a, a lingering, um misapprehension of the nature the contemporary nature of the working class you know when we people use the word casually or the term casually working class and i, I mm-hmm. there's a there's a lingering uh 
misunderstanding about who that who composes that um mm-hmm. and so i mean the 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 italian language for this you know even from that period was that what we need in each era is a new investigation of class composition you know like who works how do they work how are, how how can they be organized etc and and it's quite i mean once one stops and says it of course most everyone will say yes i know of course working class doesn't just mean people work in industrial settings people work in factories you know people and but and thinks about the wide range of things but the conceptualizing and organizing that i think are 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 you know remain a difficulty you know so that's one thing you know just about the multiplicity within the working class itself and then there's a second one you know which we were just mentioning i think you and i both which is about you know the need for and possibility for articulations between anti-capitalist struggles and anti-racist struggles and 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 feminist struggles and which aren't just about you know women at work and racial divisions of labor within the capitalist system you know so it's not just under the rubric of capital but also about I mean, it is also about that, but it's but it but that's not all. It, it's also about the 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 need and possibility for the kinds of articulation of treating on like we were saying earlier, not unequal terms. You know, treating it without priority between you know struggles against capital and struggles against uh, white supremacy in North America, or 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 the colonial settler paradigm in in North America, or in any number of other relatively autonomous structures of, of domination. Anyway, I would just bring, it seems to me those are two aspects of, a, of current projects about working class politics. You know, the multiplicity within the class and then the, the, it's belonging working class struggles as part of a multiplicity that extends beyond um, the, it extends beyond the, the shop floor in, in you know, those traditional mm-hmm. terms. Um, Mm-hmm. But you know, all of those. This is the the historical recognition, maybe that I would take from this that I think was difficult in the U.S. context. I mean, difficult everywhere, maybe, but it's true. And as as all the histories will tell you, and it's I think regular knowledge, you know that that the um, that with the transformation of capitalist production, sometimes the automation, in some part, the outsourcing of of industrial uh, labor to other poorer parts of the world, that um, the centrality of the industrial working class in political struggle was destroyed. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's true, and that's, that's recognized. I, I would say, though, that we shouldn't view that simply or maybe at all as a tragedy, but as an opportunity. Like that, that mm-hmm. that the that the centrality of the working class and revolutionary struggle, the industrial working class and revolutionary struggle, that was a problem. Um, mm. And uh, no matter how powerful it was, and at least it became a problem by the 1970s. I mean, I I, I don't know what to say about the 1930s yet, but um, <laughs> right. But for us, it would be a problem, I think. Um, yeah. And so the that the restructuring of capital that it was in many ways a response to the intensity of of 
revolutionary and 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 other forms of worker demands at the time, that restructuring, you know, was a defeat for the industrial workers movement. But it was also, I'd say, more importantly, a political mandate for us to organize differently and without the centrality of the industrial working class as as the political organization. You know, both mm-hmm. it imagines class struggle in, in, in broader terms and also that sees class struggle together as as uh, in articulation with, you know, in my language here, with with feminist struggle and anti-racist struggle and, and indigenous struggle and, and others. Uh, you know, I could keep talking to you endlessly about these issues. Um, you know, the, it, the last thing you said reminded me of this chapter in Judith Butler's The Force of Nonviolence, where she talks about Marx. And how Marx, you know, seems to privilege a certain kind of self-sufficient, masterful adult male subject to some extent in her reading that springs fully formed lucky guy, she says, uh, without needing a care network around him. Um, You know, there's this like glib way in which she's saying that um, there's a blind spot there when we're privileging a particular kind of worker as hero um, that doesn't pay attention to how entangled we are and and how reliant we are on one another. Um, and then the other thing you were saying about automation got me thinking about how, you know, the, the rise of like machine learning and the, the automating of particular kinds of work is at least it, it seems to be opening onto a, a different way of articulating different struggles and like centering precarity. Um, you know, like the SAG after a strike is in part about like workers and actors being, um, you know, uh, rendered redundant by strategies of capitalism that seek to um, simulate uh, uh, creativity and performance. And like that same kind of automating of work is threatening and rendering precarious workers in, in seemingly totally unrelated fields, right? So, what would it mean to have? you know, a labor movement that didn't prioritize one notion of creativity, uh, one kind of labor over another, and just saw automation um, as a thing that needs to be problematized um, and and decentered in, in favor of other ideas about creativity itself, you know? Um, so all kinds of stuff is coming up for me. Um, but I think, you know, the, the thing I like about the book and, and the thing that I see see it as modeling is this certain generosity that says, you know, we, you know, we don't need to have a sense of what is sacred in order to struggle. Like these values of, you know, solidarity might be exclusionary. Um, you know, the, it reminds me of the way Sarah Ahmed writes about love and actually Slavoj Žižek talks about love as in some ways like an evil force, uh, love of the same. Um, you know, like it, these are dangerous stories to tell, but I think you're telling them out of a kind of spirit of generosity and, and attachment to democracy that I, um, I really, you know, appreciate. Uh, but yeah, I, I think we should maybe leave it there. You've been super generous with your time and this has been a real pleasure. So I, I can't thank you enough. I, I, I also enjoyed it. And I like the idea that one should finish a conversation on open questions that we have not answered. That seems like exactly the right place to stop.